0: Today's tale begins when the Smith family sit down to enjoy a film. Suddenly they heard the scariest sound. The Wi-Fi is down. The family were doomed to wait for a film that wouldn't load. Save yourself from broadband nightmares. Get BT's Unbreakable Hybrid Broadband backed up by EE, the UK's best network. Search BT Hybrid Broadband. 88% UK availability. 4G connection takes up to 175 seconds. Best for mobile network performance. Verify at ee.co.uk forward slash claims
1: yes it's yeah it's one of it's one of my favorite of of, of her but i think my two favorite action oh no, okay my three favorite you can do this i'm actually, gonna leave <laughs> sorry
2: sorry
1: That's fine. no my th- oh these are my three favorite tony morrison sorry <laughs>
2: With thanks to Baileys, this is the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast, celebrating women's writing, sharing our creativity, our voices and our perspectives, all while championing the very best fiction written by women around the world. I'm Vic Hope and I'm your host for season five of the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast, the podcast that asks women with lives as inspiring as any fiction to share the five books by women that have shaped them. We have a phenomenal lineup of guests for 2022 and I guarantee you'll be taking away plenty of reading recommendations. Hello and welcome to today's episode of Bookshelfie. A quick reminder that this year's shortlist is out now and the six brilliant authors and their books can all be found on our website www.womenspriceforfiction.co.uk and you'll also have the chance to hear from all of them to talk about their wonderful books on a bonus episode of the podcast. But today our guest is the phenomenal writer, academic and broadcaster Emma Dabbery. Her first book exploded onto the scene with critical acclaim from just about everyone, from fellow authors, including Marion Keyes and Bernadine Evaristo, to newspapers like The Guardian and The Irish Times. The essay collection, Don't Touch My Hair, explored the way that colonisation, oppression and ultimately liberation are all expressed in black women's hair. Emma's second book, a Sunday Times bestseller, What White People Can Do Next, From Allyship to Coalition, is a long-form essay book looking at how support for anti-racism can be translated into meaningful structural action. Welcome to the podcast, Emma. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm really good. It's lovely to meet you and an absolute pleasure to have you to speak about the books that have shaped you and what what they mean to you. Um, how long have you been an avid reader oh um
1: from as from as long as i can remember really um but i think it, it really really kind of took off um when i was on holiday in nigeria uh well yeah i went to stay with my grandparents when i was like seven and none of my no one was around like none of my cousins were around there was like no one my age around and then i found like this um copy that had been maybe my dad's or had been somebody's book when they were a child like a really old edition of um a book a Victorian children's book called five okay. children and it um, yes. and I read that I think it was probably like for a, an older child but I was like kind of like desperate for for like for entertainment and I found this copy of five children and it And I remember reading that and just being, like, transported, like, to this very different kind of British Victorian children's world that was in sharp contrast (laughs) to, like, physically where I was at that time. Um, But I just remember being, like, completely, like, engrossed. And I feel that was, like, a really significant point in, like, my relationship to to books and reading.
2: It's so similar to something that I experienced as well. Whereabouts in Nigeria were you? Where are your family? In Lagos. Okay. Yeah, we used to so my family were also half I'm half Nigerian, half um my family were in Newcastle. And we used to go to the village. We used to go via Lagos and stay there for about a week first and then head to Umuma, which is sort of near the Delta, mm-hmm. Emo State. And I remember being so engrossed in books as well because there was nothing else really to do. We'd just be at the house and we'd just be on the compounds and And it was like a way of being transported to these worlds that felt like I really needed them at the time. I completely, completely relate to your experience. Oh, that's awesome.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so like, you know, I think in a way it was like, because of not having TV, because of not having like Mm. a lot of the distractions um, that one or the other forms of entertainment that like computer games and stuff, (laughs) you know, it really, um, yeah, I think it was it, it was really, I'm really grateful for that, you know, even though I might not have felt like that
2: at the time, and from five children in it, um, how did your reading tastes develop as you grew up?
1: Well, like I read like a lot of black children's literature and a lot of um, a lot of black history from from like a really young age. And I think that was in large part that was a combination of factors. So like I was born in Dublin, but um, as soon as I was born, we moved to Atlanta. Georgia, in the American South. Right. my dad was studying at, um, at Morehouse. And in Atlanta, like in the 80s, because Atlanta is like a really black city, there was a lot of children's literature. There was a lot of black children's literature. Um, so when people talk about, you know, kind of they're, they're like not seeing like representation in books when they were younger, that wasn't my experience like in Atlanta at all. So I was just like exposed to... Um, a lot of children's literature that just had black characters um, that just ha- like was comprised of black characters and black cultural worlds. But, so that wasn't even actively seeking them out. That was just like what was around me. Then we moved to Ireland and things like shifted dramatically. Yeah, <laughs> so, <I can> imagine. <laughs> so that very like black cultural world that was like not even so easily accessible. It's just like what I was in was like completely removed. And it was like the the polar opposite. And I think in trying to seek out, and like a lot of the experiences that I had when I moved to Ireland, I didn't have anyone else to talk to them about, like there weren't other, there weren't other black people, like I, there weren't like other, like I didn't, yeah, there weren't other black kids around, you know. And then, like my mom is white, my dad, well, I don't know what he, th- I don't know what he thought, and he went back to Nigeria like shortly afterwards, anyway. So it was just kind of like me trying to make sense yeah. of experiences of racism, but really, really like compounded by like just intense isolation and alienation because it felt like it was just happening to me and I didn't have anybody you know to try and unpack it or understand it with so I think I was really looking for answers um to some of the things that I was experiencing in 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 books you know and maybe trying to create like a sort of sense of like black community that I didn't that I didn't actually have that I didn't have anymore. that I sought out kind of like in,
2: in literature and books. I completely understand. I remember seeking out books that I felt sort of validated by or provided me with a sense of community or solace in lieu of there being yeah. anyone else who looked like me around me. And finding them on the page of the books was, um, mm-hmm. it was very special and it, and it really set me up. But I think, I think my understanding of racism came quite a theoretical viewpoint because i was like seeing things on the pages of books and then trying to analyze them um yeah u- using using the way that and um, they've been talked about by authors um rather than like just chatting to people around me because they did not exist um but it's yeah yeah, yeah it's yeah. so formative and it's so interesting to hear that Um, from you. Should we move on to your first bookshelfy book and and how this might have shaped your life? Um, And it is Woman on the Edge of Time by Marge Piercy, a 1976 novel considered an absolute classic of utopian speculative science fiction, as well as a feminist classic. The story follows Connie Ramos, who's been unjustly incarcerated in a mental institution with no hope of release. The authorities view her as a danger to herself and to others, and her family has given up on her, but she has a secret way to escape the confines of her cell. When did you first read this book? Why did you pick it?
1: So I first read it when I was about 17. Um, and to be honest, I haven't read it in a long time. I read it a few times, but um, the last time I read it, I was probably like in my early 20s. So I haven't read it in a long time. Um, but I think it was a book that was, um, you know, really formative, actually, like in a lot of my... Yeah, that was just like really influential Um And when I think about like a lot of the way that I write and the way I'm interested in mixing like kind of historical research and like sociology and actually this is slightly different to this book, but when I think about, okay, something else that I do that is kind of very interested in this idea of like ancient futures Mm. and how there are, aspects of pre-colonial cultures that are actually really really like far more I guess progressive is the word that we would like a kind of a contemporary word that we would use that are kind of far more progressive than sometimes where we find ourselves now and ways in which you can think about um kind of taking from the taking from the past to create more radical futures is an idea that's like very pronounced in this book where Connie the main protagonist um yeah is in um a, a an, an institution but as as you described she has this kind of she has this way out she's a time traveler but you're like is she a time traveler or is she or is this like a symptom of um of a, of a mental illness it's kind of one of the things that's going on that's going on in the book um but the future that she travels to is one that is um very based in these kind of like pre-colonial um types of um like communal living but is also really really technologically advanced Mm. and has all of this um basically has harnessed like all of this like kind of very futuristic technology but kind of um you know, merge that with ways of living that I guess, yeah, would be described as, um, I guess you could describe as like kind of like pre-colonial or like indigenous, and um, I think that vision, um, was like very, yeah, was very influential on me at like, yeah, at a young age.
2: In terms of your own writing and and the influence it might have had on that, where do you find inspiration for your writing? What 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 spurs you on? I find inspiration. Um,
1: like in a lot of, in a lot of different places, but I'm really, I'm really, really inspired by like black radical traditions. And, um, like I read a lot of theory as well as, as, as well as fiction. Um, I think like in large part that's because I've been doing a PhD for yeah.
2: longer than I care to. <laughs>
1: that's just the way. <laughs> for a long time. But I am in the final year. Yes. That chapter, that long chapter of my life is finally drawing to a close. Um but like yeah, I read a lot of I read a lot of theory and I think um there's a there's a kind of school of thinking or like body of literature called like the the the, the, the black radical tradition. And I guess it emerges from um it's mostly like Black, black American, um, or it's Black American in origin. And I think its roots are coming from forms of resistance and abolition. You know, people who were, um, who were cast as property or the descendants of people who were seen as property, thinking about liberatory strategies and ways of being that like abolish the systems that positioned them structurally in that way. So it's not just about um, how can we thrive Mm. in this system? It's actually about how can we organize society differently? So these forms of um, exploitation, and yeah, these forms of exploitation no longer exist for anybody. So I feel like marrying that kind of theory with narrative um, and with memoir,
2: that's inspiring. On the subject of resistance, you know, a key theme in this book is injustice. Um, So many injustices, but, you know, the injustices particularly experienced by black people, even now when racism in so many institutions is supposedly non-existent, we know that to be a fallacy. Um, In your book, you quote George Lipsich who says good intentions are not adequate in the face of relentlessly oppressive and powerful well-financed military and economic political systems so what do you think is the route that we need to dismantle what is needed to fight back um yeah so that that
1: quote from George Lipset um, so yeah he's like an, an American academic that would be a part of this black radical tradition mm-hmm. um, he's actually like a white American um, but People operate in the black, people advance kind of theory and ideas within this black radical tradition that might not necessarily be racialized as black, Mm -hmm. although the the origins of the of the discourse come from people who are racialized as black. But there's other people that operate within that within that space as well. Um, So I think that what we need. So what he's talking about is he's he's kind of comparing in the broader context where that quote is from is he's talking about um, the some of the the movements and organizing of like the 1960s and the 1970s, where they were actually concerned with presenting uh, alternative systems and institutions um, within society as opposed to, no as opposed or in contrast to now, where he's saying he, in this kind of current moment, there doesn't seem to be that kind of organisation of, you know, people were coming up with like forms of like collectives and um, like alternative schooling and just all alternative institutions. Whereas now the emphasis seems to be more so on keeping things as they are, but just making them more inclusive, mm. which doesn't necessarily tackle the fact that these are systems that are exploitative, no matter how diverse they are.
0: Star Wars: Andor streaming exclusively on Disney Plus. Cassian Andor, Empire is choking us. I need all the heroes I can get. From the creators of Rogue One.
2: There is an organized rebel effort. Get a hunt started.
0: Witness the beginning. This
2: is what revolution looks like.
0: Of rebellion. I'm tired of losing. Wouldn't you rather give it all to something real? Star Wars Andor. Original series streaming September 21st. Exclusively on Disney+. 18+. Subscription required. T's and C's apply. Today's tale begins when the Smith family sit down to enjoy a film. Suddenly they heard the scariest sound. The Wi-Fi is down. The family were doomed to wait for a film that wouldn't load. (laughs) Save yourself from broadband nightmares. Get BT's Unbreakable Hybrid Broadband backed up by EE, the UK's best network. Search BT Hybrid Broadband. 88% UK availability. 4G connection takes up to 175 seconds. Best for mobile network performance. Verify at
2: ee.co.uk forward slash claims baileys is proudly supporting the women's prize for fiction by helping showcase incredible writing by remarkable women celebrating their accomplishments and getting more of their books into the hands of more people looking for a treat to pair with your favorite book baileys is the perfect accompaniment to enjoy either over ice or over coffee There are no better friendships than those formed around brilliant books. And since you're listening, we're guessing you love books as much as we do. The Women's Prize has created an exclusive community that gives you a bookish backstage pass, offering surprises and freebies, plus unmissable reading recommendations and book chat from our founder friends, including me, Vic Hope. Search for Women's Prize friend to become a friend today. We cannot wait to meet you. We'll move now onto your second Shelfie book, which is Quicksand by Nella Larsen. Published in 1928, Nella Larsen's powerful first novel has intriguing autobiographical parallels and at the same time invokes the international dimension of African-American culture of the 1920s. It also evocatively portrays the racial and gender restrictions that can mark a life. Emma, tell me about this book. Why did it resonate with you?
1: So I first read Quicksand about 12 years ago, and it actually didn't massively resonate with me. I don't even really remember it. Right. I And then I was teaching a course looking at the parallels between the Irish literary revival and the Harlem Renaissance. Okay. And the Harlem Renaissance is a really important black um, American uh, literary, uh, literary period um, in the, the is, again, it's about 20 years after the Irish literary revival, um, the kind of, it's in like the 1920s and arguably kind of into the 1930s. And Nella Larson's book would be um, kind of a, a classic of the Harlem Renaissance. So when I was teaching this course, I was like, oh, um, well, I want to look at more, I want to look at some of the key female authors, in the Harlem Renaissance, and they would be kind of Nella Larson and Zora Neale Hurston. And so I reread it for that. And I was like, whoa, like <laughs> what? Like how How was I so kind of unmoved by this the first time I read it? why can't I really remember it? In terms of like the writing style, it's such a sublimely written book and it's such an important modernist text it's also kind of uncanny in that it was written a hundred years ago, almost a hundred years ago. And my students like couldn't believe that it wasn't, that it hadn't just been written. Right. Um, it is so, It taps into so many um, themes and conversations that are still so deeply pertinent mm. today, and that we're still completely grappling with. But she's writing this like a hundred, a hundred years ago, and she's also just very the the. A lot of the female characters are just very modern seeming, and I think that's also really important um, to to demonstrate that Harlem in the nineteen twenties was this. Um, you know there was like there was a lot going on that could make it you know comparable to um to the to the world today it was like very cosmopolitan and in many ways like very bohemian and like progressive and lots of lots of really interesting stuff happening
2: it's such an amazing thing when a book manages somehow inexplicably to pass you by on a first reading and you go back and you're just like how did I miss this but sometimes we're just not ready and then we are sometimes you're not in the right yeah, place for exactly it. You're, yeah you're not in the right place and then for it's it, so pertinent <laughs> um I, I don't know about you but I was always so drawn to books about characters of dual heritage when I was growing up and that navigating of where you might belong um just as Helga does um d- did you did you find that when you were growing up, um, your Nigerian Ar- Irish heritage was it important to you to to sort of explore where you might belong? Did you ever feel excluded from either?
1: Um, I wouldn't say so I was particularly drawn to um, to narratives where people were. Uh, I I can I can hardly like so my PhD is all about the racial category mixed race. Mm-hmm. I have to put it in inverted <laughs> commas because it's not a ter- I, I understand why the term is 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 used and why people um I understand why it's used but it's one that I try not to use um and my 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 phd is kind of unpacking the whole thing um so I wouldn't say I was particularly drawn to stories where the protagonists were quote unquote mixed race I was really drawn to stories where there were black protagonists and often sometimes those protagonists were, were quote unquote mixed race, but I would say it was more broadly, maybe like black protagonists, but the diversity that exists amongst black people. So I think I was interested often in characters who were liminal Mm. in some way, um, who were outsiders in some way, but, That wasn't necessarily because they were quote unquote mixed race, you know. So, yeah, there were definitely characters who were who were mixed, but I'd say they sat within like a broader interest that I had in kind of black storytelling.
2: We'll move on now to your third book, which is Paradise by Toni Morrison. Four young women are brutally attacked in a convent near an all-black town in America in the mid-1970s. The inevitability of this attack and the attempts to avert it lie at the heart of paradise. Toni Morrison challenges our most fiercely held beliefs as she weaves folklore and history into an unforgettable novel of race, religion, gender and a far-off past that is ever-present. Why did you choose this book, Emma?
1: Um, because I love it and also interestingly like um, Quicksand I read it when I was much younger and actually I didn't I didn't feel um, ambivalent about it I loved it the first time I read it but I loved it with an acknowledgement that it was like a woman's book mm. and I was still kind of like a girl yeah. and I felt like there were themes in it that if I read them when I was older they would resonate more strongly with me and you recognized so that like, at the time I recognized that at the time and I was like I'm gonna come back to this okay. book when I'm when I'm when I'm older yeah. <laughs> uh, even though like I like I said I loved it at the time and then I read it again about three years ago being a lot older, you know, having being 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 a mother, um, having just experienced a lot more of life, and yeah, it resonated. It resonated more. I understood it better. I understood it better. Also, I mean, again, like when you were describing it, um, and you're talking about like that mix of like mythology and like history um and the past and the future and time these are all um these are all themes that i've like i think been drawn to um as a as a reader and also really reflect i guess the way the way that i write as well i feel like the the, the first tony morrison book i read was song of was song of solomon right. i was actually like i found it really hard to to do this list,
2: I can imagine of five books. Yeah, and I you was know just like, <laughs> Toni Morrison comes up. I think, I think pretty much every episode, maybe minus one or two max. But she's been such an influential author on all of my guests, whether they've been writers and she's influenced the way they write, or just moreover, just the way that they live, the way that they look at the world, and the way that they look at themselves. She's had such an impact on so many of us, and she draws so much pain and so much beauty at the same time out of the world around us um, and helps us challenge the world around us. How important is it to challenge the world around us, to challenge beliefs, to challenge the way that we're living? Yeah, I think
1: it's it's extremely important, but then I also think as well that it's really important, but increasingly I think one can't sustain an entire life in an oppositional yes. In an oppositional stance. Got the energy for that. So it's about <laughs> it's about fun. and also it pits you against something. So you're always like resist you're all you're this things that you things that you may you know want to what's the word? That you that you want to challenge can become just the central organizing force of your life so they're kind of like taking up too much space within your life and i'm i'm really interested in this idea of like of of refusal and there's an author that i am um, that i whose work really inspires me um called fred moten he's a, a again you know part of this black radical tradition uh he's a, a black american um critic and scholar um and he talks about this, he, to, he there's this quote from him where he's like, refuse that which refused you. So in a way, like, in, in, refuse that which first refused you. So in a way, it's kind of going back to like what we were saying with George Lipsitz as well. Rather than just um, opposing you know, things as they are, but being locked in this oppositional relationship with them, you can actually reimagine and recreate or create an alternative that you exist and operate in without just, with. so this idea of like refusing that which refused you, not necessarily demanding to be seen by it, Mm. but actually just being like, you know rejecting it refusing it and creating something different so i think that's an idea that really excites me so yes challenging things is necessary and we do have to like we do have to fight injustice and exploitation and oppression but we also as well as that have to
2: imagine and create alternatives when you have challenged and when you have fought in the past i know that you've um you've received racist abuse you've you've talked about this uh, after having done public speaking, you said it didn 't affect you because in in your words it 's just words, but words can hold a lot of power over people. How did you take the power out of those words um, how did you How did you deal with that?
1: I feel desensitized to verbal racism. Um, I think as a result of the volume of it right. that i that I experienced. That I experienced growing up, um, it just came to it. Just came to a point where it's like oversaturation. It's like you can't keep being exposed to something, and it have it have the same impact. And I feel like that's probably like not. It's like a, I guess it's like a desensitization, um, and probably like something like of a defense mechanism, um, and probably like not super healthy, but in a way I feel like I was, um, I was very well placed to speak publicly about racism and be able to deal with the the backlash that that can entail because this wasn't my first go in the rodeo. Anything that people have said to me online, I've had that I've had I've I've had that kind of thing said to me, you know, frequently, frequently growing up. Um, so I just feel a bit like I don't know, like meh about it. However, I feel like I understand like if I think about my children having those experiences mm. or other people having those experiences, I feel horrified. You know? So it's not to detract from the impact of those things it's just that for me personally specifically because of the time and place that I grew up in
2: I don't know those kind of words have little impact yeah I mean you can deal with a lot more than you think you can but it doesn't mean you should because as you say there is another generation and another and another and another and we hope that things will get better how do you see the the um the world that your kids are growing up in and specifically Ireland, because that's what you can compare it to when you grew up.
1: Yeah, um, so Ireland like has changed dramatically and rapidly um, in ways that I, you know, would not have foreseen. Um, And if I would have foreseen them, I think I would have thought the time period would, would be greater you know so i actually feel like really excited about um about ireland and about the way about some of the ways it is engaging with becoming a country that isn't so the country i grew up in was like a 99.9 percent white country right. you know there was no people were like oh uh, I guess he didn't have like representation in media. I was just like, it wasn't that there wasn't representation in media. It was like there wasn't any other black. <laughs> no,
2: there wasn't representation in, in, in the world. In
1: the world, I didn't even really care about the media. I was just talking about like who's who who's around me. The media is like, not even getting to that stage yet. Um, so and now and and also when I was growing up, like to be black and Irish was just like it was like an oxymoron. Right. You know, it's just like how can that How can that even be? Whereas now it's like kind of, especially in Ireland, it's unremarkable. It's still when you're in other countries and you say you're Irish, people are like surprised and you can still see the cogs. So I kind of noticed that more outside of Ireland. Whereas like in Ireland, um, I guess the rest of the world hasn't kind of gotten the memo about how Ireland has changed. But like in Ireland, it's pretty unremarkable to be Irish and to not be white. And that was something that was like, yeah, like an, I would say like an oxymoron when I was, when I was growing up. And um, I see a lot of um, Irish people who aren't white, you know, just describe themselves as Irish in a way that I wouldn't see many British people who aren't white just be like, yeah, I'm English.
2: Have you found biscuiteers yet? Biscuiteers are the original hand-iced biscuit gifting company offering beautiful biscuit collections for any occasion. All of their gorgeous biscuits are lovingly hand-iced one at a time by artists at the Ministry of Biscuits in London. One of my absolute favourites is the Butterfly Collection. The biscuits are absolute works of art. They look like perfect hand-painted butterflies and come in the most beautiful tin. You're bound to make an impression with these. And Biscuitiers are offering our lovely listeners 15% off your first order with the code LOVEFICTION. So, for the very best present ideas, head to com now. Your fourth bookshelfy book now is The Birds and Other Short Stories by Daphne du Maurier. A classic of alienation and horror, The Birds was immortalised by Hitchcock in his celebrated film. The five other chilling stories in this collection echo a sense of dislocation and mock man's dominance over the natural world why is this book made your list emma
1: oh my god so i love um i love ghost stories okay i've always loved ghost stories remember um i was at the beginning of our conversation i was saying that um i read really widely and i also when i was little like read a lot of like folklore and mythology um and also ghost stories and i feel like growing up in Ireland, um, this idea of the, the division between like the kind of seen and the unseen between like the magical and the ordinary is not as, um, is, is like, is like they, 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 they kind of like, what's the word? They kind of like coexist or sit, sit side by side, and I feel like are, um, yeah, there's a lot, there are a lot of ghost, there are a lot of ghost stories, you know, kind of grew up hearing a, a, a lot of them, and just always had, yeah, just was always, like, always really enjoyed reading them. I don't like horror, like, I hate, um, I hate gore, and I hate, like, you know, like, kind of, like, slasher, horror but I love ghost stories like ghost films as well so this these books and I I like I like weird and uncanny like short stories as well and Daphne du Merrier is just a masterful creator of these eerie uncanny odd worlds um and there's a story in in this book so the birds is the birds is the best known yeah. one i guess because of the hitchcock movie but there's one called the usherette about um yeah an usherette in a in a movie theater um i think she like she's very like pretty and glamorous um but she has a secret <laughs> and it is such A creepy story and she she has she she, again she has these female protagonists that are just you know unexpected and they're not what they're not what they seem often and there's a real yeah there's just like I don't know just like very unusual female characters you know um that I just yeah I really just love her writing and this book of short stories in particular is just like very cool
2: why is it that you think that you've reached for horror or, or reach for ghost stories as you've gone through your life is it um is it an escape I mean is there even a sense of like weirdly oxymoronically like a sense of comfort in it um
1: yeah so I would say not horror like I kind of avoid like I I, I don't I don't like horror but with ghost stories I feel because I really like folklore and mythology and there's quite a kind of crossover between that yeah and ghost stories I think the interest comes from that but also because I'm really interested in time and in Don't Touch My Hair like you know it's a book about black hair but I have a chapter on on time which a lot of people have said to me is their favorite chapter of the book and they hadn't been expecting or anticipating that to, to to be in there. I was looking at the idea that, you know, black hair has been imagined as burdensome and too time consuming. Mm. And I was just like, well, that can't be right because if that was the case, then then it's like as though there's something deviant about my hair. And I know that's not the, I know that that's not the case. It must be that the way we organize time, um, you know, hasn't been constructed or designed to take into account the needs of uh, people with this, with this hair texture, you know, um, because like, yeah, like, to, to in order for me to do my hair, it does, it it takes time. But the problem can't be with my hair. It's more so what we um, determine we should be doing with the hours in the day. So, in order to write that chapter, I started to look at like African concepts of time, in which time was approached and understood and organized like very differently, and. One of the things that, you know, is, is significant is that in the West we have this lin- linear idea of time um, and there being like a very clearly defined distinction and um, difference between the the past, the present and the future. And in lots of, in lots of uh, kind of African concepts of time and actually not just African but kind of like non-Western concepts of time and like, you know, kind of uh, where a lot of like kind of folklore and mythology also, um, I guess, comes from are these different approaches, these different approaches to time and within the African um, uh, kind of cultures that I was looking at. There's this idea of um, in the spiritual belief systems, which really connects to the way time is understood um, ancestral veneration is really key so and there's this idea that like the ancestors the living and the unborn are kind of in this um time is more cyclical than linear like beginning middle and end and so are the ancestors are reborn and the unborn might have already been here and they're just waiting to like come again. Yeah. And there's this idea that there's this sharp kind of divide between the ancestral, the living and the unborn is kind of dissolved. And so I'm really interested in the the past inform, the future informing the past and the present informing the past and all of these different um, times being in, being in like, Communication, kind of, with each other. So I think the kind of interest in the past in in dissolving those um, those boundaries. I think my interesting kind of, like, ghost stories yeah. is also related <laughs> to all of that. <laughs> Sorry, very no, no, complicated no. answer. You know but... <laughs> what, your
2: answer was very, like, it was very pictorial, because I'm imagining ghosts the way that you're talking about the future informing the past. And I, I'm imagining swirling, like, just pure swirling, which is how I imagine a ghost. And, and the ghost stories just keep, sort of keep moving as time does, as we keep sort of influencing a, a, the whole of humanity. Um, yeah. Oh, can, I'm glad. I uh, can <laughs> picture it. And
1: then just just to say really quickly, that I guess ghosts are kind of imagined as largely like negative Mm. and um and sinister and you know you have exorcisms and you try and get them to be at peace whereas a, a big difference I guess with like ancestral um belief systems is actually you try and invoke the ancestral spirits and they're seen as you know being in communication with them is seen as something that is like good for individuals is good for the community is associated with knowledge and wisdom and healing um so there's 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 a different i guess there's a different um there's a there's quite different kind of i guess understandings Mm. of the difference between i guess those ancestral traditions and the idea of being kind of haunted by ghosts they have different um what's the word connotation
2: Your fifth and final book this week, Emma, is Their Eyes Were Watching God by Zora Neale Hurston. A 1937 novel considered a classic of the Harlem Renaissance, there is, and Hurston's (laughs) best known work. Janie Crawford sets out to be her own person. No mean feat for a black woman in the 30s. Janie's quest for identity takes her through three marriages and into a journey back to her roots. Why did you pick this?
1: Yeah, so actually this is interesting. In ter- This isn't why I picked the book, but something I want to pick up on when um, uh, you asked about uh, quote-unquote mixed-race characters. Okay, so basically Janie is raised by her grandmother mm. who was like an enslaved woman. But Janie's... So Janie's grandmother was an enslaved woman who had Janie's mum. So I think it's like her owner was the father of Janie's mum. So Janie's mum... It has has a has a white dad, the main protagonist. But Janie's mom has died. Janie's mom was also raped by a white man. So Janie, the main protagonist in the book, has a lot of white ancestry, but she's never presented as a mixed race character. She's a she's a black woman in like a segregated like put, like short, recently kind of like out of slavery. Um, world you know so there are characters within black literature there are many characters who have mixed ancestry but they're not delineated as mixed race characters sure. if that makes yeah. sense um so anyway that's Janie's background as a result of Janie's mother's Janie's grandmother so Janie's grandmother is raising her as a result of the horror that she's experienced she really wants Janie to have like a comfortable life Or no, not even a comfortable life, a life where she is safe, basically. And the only way that she can see Janie being safe is to be married to like a a wealthy, relatively wealthy, powerful man. There's an arranged marriage, essentially, where Janie um, marries a wealthy, wealthy black man in the community who's lots older than her. And the story is basically, so I don't actually read like a lot of romance novels. Um, that's not that's not really my thing, um, but this is like, oh my God, like <laughs> it is so, I was bawling crying by the end of it. I was literally like in floods of tears. I was like in pieces like, and especially like, you know, for someone who doesn't really read like romance, um, I was just like, whoa this writing about love is like so is so powerful and so poetic and expansive and beautiful that I yeah I wanted I wanted to include
2: it. It's a really beautiful inclusion I think amongst your collection that you've brought to us today and (laughs) I love that and that's what this podcast is all about. Um, I've actually seen you mention I think in an interview that you love subversion um, so much so that your your book uh, what white people can do next you made it look like it was part of the anti-racist genre which was you know frustrating many people um are there any parts of yourself that you do this with um give people the wrong impression or 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 not not lure them in a malicious sense but um you know just <laughs> just, just play with play with perception
1: well i don't act i don't actively um i don't actively set out to do that. But I know that based on my appearance, people often tend to think that I'm very different to how I am. Certainly they think my interests will be very different often to to what they are. And many times I've turned up somewhere um, in my role as a researcher or an academic or, you know, to do some to do some research or to, to do something that's like kind of very specific mm-hmm. to my kind of like academic training because I do lots of different stuff. And people will be like, oh, where's the person we were expecting kind of thing? I'm like, she's me. <laughs> and um, I think they're a bit like, oh, I remember turning up for something. And actually, let me not, let me not even tell that story. But um, yeah, I th- I, you know, I think there's, um, people tend to think that I'm, Younger than I am, and then I wear makeup, and I like, um, you know, I like kind of I like dressing up, and people make assumptions about about those things. You know, if you're a woman that kind of is perceived as being young or glamorous, um, people will often make assumptions about your interests or perhaps even your intellect or the level of depth that you might have. And that really pisses me off. Um, So (laughs) I refuse to actually minimize, I refuse to kind of alter the way I present myself to conform to people's expectations.
2: I'll never forget seeing um, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie talking about um, wearing makeup and dressing however she wanted. And I, I felt like, yeah, you know what? why is it always, why has it always felt like I won't be taken seriously if I do these things that I actually really, really love that make me happy and at the end of the day, what else have we got? We can be not just anything but everything. Um, Exactly. Emma, if you had to choose just one book from your list and I know they're all, they're all quite different and they they do different things, they say different things, they speak to you in different ways but if there was just one that was a favourite, which one would it be and why? I hate this question. I'm so sorry.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm. I'm like, I. I feel guilty. Like, like I'm cheating on these books I know. I'm for everyone. I don't. Morrison. <laughs> for everyone, I don't choose. Do you know what? I'm have to. Go, I'm gonna have to go with Tony Morrison right. actually because, um, particular with her in particular, I couldn't even think which book to choose. Right. I think I partially chose Paradise because I thought. If people had chosen Tony Morrison a lot, which I assume people had Paradise probably wasn't the one no, that they chose right so, Beloved's yeah, probably so been the, like, the one that's
2: come up the most i think I, I often
1: try and choose the books by authors that aren't their best known ones um but with um or or, or aren't their most popular ones, but with um it, it would be Tony Morrison because it was difficult to narrow it down. Yeah to just one book. I could do one of these podcasts with my top five Tony <laughs> yeah. Morrison books.
2: You know what though, if anyone um, listening right now hasn't read that book, then this is hopefully going to, you know, inspire them to pick it up. It sort of presses it into their hands, which is a good thing. Yes.
1: Yes. it's Yeah, it's one of, it's one of my favourite of, of, of her books. I think my two favourite, oh, no, okay, my three favourite. You can do that. I'm going to leave. Sorry, sorry. That's fine. No, my, th- oh, these are my three favourite Tony Morrison, <laughs> sorry.
2: It's Sula, Song of Solomon and Paradise. Okay. Yeah. So again, if anyone's listening hasn't read them, there you go. Eight <laughs> recommendations for the price of five. Um, thank you so much, Emma. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you and just hearing about your life, your work, your loves, your your thoughts, and the books that have shaped you. Thank you. I enjoyed it a lot. I'm Hunt, and you've been listening to the women's prize for fiction podcast please do rate and review this podcast it is the easiest way to help spread the word about the female talent you've heard about today the women's prize for fiction podcast is brought to you by baileys and produced by bird line media thank you so much for listening and i'll see you next time
0: Star Wars Andor, streaming exclusively on Disney+. Cassian Andor, Empire's choking us. I need all the heroes I can get. From the creators of Rogue One.
2: There is an organized rebel effort. Get a hunt started.
0: Witness the beginning. This
2: is what revolution looks like.
0: Of rebellion. I'm tired of losing. Wouldn't you rather give it all up to something real? Star Wars Andor, original series streaming September 21st, exclusively on Disney+. 18+, subscription required. T's and C's apply.